We're going to go with all right. Um, Namaste and in la catch. Hi, I'm Zen Benefiel and welcome to One World in a New World. Now those two phrases, one means the divine within me recognizes the divine within you and the other means I am another you. So together we can share a great planet and do a lot of really cool things when we can see each other in those perspectives. So I'd like to welcome to the show Fyodor uh, Ovchinikov, who uh, I met through Thought Leadership for Systems Transformation series that he's putting together or has put together through the Institute of Evolutionary Leadership, which is a really cool institute. He's brought a lot of people from around the world who are pioneers in systems transformation. So and in today's world, that's really what we need to look at. There's a lot of people who are involved in this kind of field right now because of the needs that we have and what we're going through collectively on the planet. The virtual world has opened that up to some really phenomenal conversations, interactions, and even group projects that are in process as we speak. It's a really cool thing. Fjorder, welcome to the show. Now, um, Please. <laughs> great. Uh, Thank great. you, Zen. It's a pleasure to be here. I um, wanted to give a, just a little bit more about your background. You've got a Master of Arts in International uh, Business from um, Lomonosov University, Moscow, um, University. Moscow State Moscow. University. And you've um, also gone around and visited Stanford and University of Chicago and the Shenzhen Polytechnic. So you've been around in the educational field. And uh, I would imagine that's brought you into a really well-rounded place. The, um, the meeting of, that we had initially, and, you know, I was kind of, uh, I was reflecting on, you know, how did we actually, how did I find you, right? Or what, what kind of happened? It was one of those moments where, you know, there's this kind of intention to connect with people and you showed up and the program was just enticing. And so I got involved and I've had a really enjoyable time so far. Now, what enabled that to happen was you co-founded the Institute for Evolutionary Leadership with Manuel Manga um, some years ago. How did that take place? What were the, what was going on in your life and, and what, were, what were you thinking at least as far as your mission and purpose and, and how you might engage that and what showed up as a result? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Zen. Uh, happy to share um, uh, part of, uh, some, some of the um, stories. Um, yeah. So first of all, just let me put it out there that uh, it's really me supporting Manuel Manga with founding the Institute. And uh, because Manuel uh, came up with the uh, concept of evolution leadership and with the competences uh, when I was in elementary school somewhere uh, on the vestiges of the Soviet Union, um, so he's really been uh, doing this work for, for a long, long time. And I hope that you will have a chance to interview him as well about his story, which is super rich. Um, yeah, so, but I'll, I'll, I'll share more about how we got connected. And um, then I just want to clarify that my master's degree, as well as bachelor's degree from the same university, um, which is Moscow, Lamanas of Moscow State University, um, Institute of Asian African Studies is part of it university. So okay. it's not an international business. It's an international economic relations. So it's macroeconomics. It's not organizations, Okay. Um, which uh, is corrected. Thank you for that. No, no, but that is important because Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. one of the yes. threads in my journey deals with my master's studies. Um, so I was, uh, that's when I actually got familiar with the systems thinking for the first time and the complexity and um, uh, and, and, and all that. And I was given this interesting challenge by my academic supervisor uh, to study resilience of the socioeconomic system of China in comparison with those of other countries. Um, and uh, very quickly, I realized that um, it's one thing to predict something that is a result of unsustainable trends. So there is some structural um, inequalities of, or imbalances uh, that have certain dynamics 
that are leading to a collapse or to a breakdown. Sure. And, you can and from a distance, much... those are probably fairly easy to observe, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's fairly easy to observe. It's fairly easy to quantify and show. And, you know, that's that's cool. But also, uh, you know, the interconnectedness of the social, the ecological, the economic and all that. Um, it's much more complex. And uh, it's those um, emergent properties of, 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 of that those relationships that I found for myself that I got fascinated by. So I wrote this philosophical paper for the philosophy course, um, which, um, uh, which was called uh, something like in English, um, something like um, socioeconomic studies in search of a subject. And where I explored okay. what economic system actually is for myself, right? Philosophical, right. what is it? What is the ontology of that? And um, um, at that point, I was kind of reinventing the wheel because um, uh, people like John Searle and, and others uh, had articulated some of the ideas that I considered my personal discoveries, like they had articulated that decades before, <laughs> before I even got do you, there. Do you find also that as you're on this path to discovery, right, with this intent to, to discover that once you do, then you start looking around and you look for corroboration or reflection of others and you find, oh, wow, others have been down this path too. Cool. Now I'm on mm -hmm. it with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately that happened to me later. So I had to table this at that point because mm -hmm. I, you know, I, what one of my personal, uh, personal discoveries for myself was that uh, actually we are co-creating socioeconomic system. We're not just uh, objective observers of a given reality that we don't impact. So we just need to describe and study. Well, I, I forget who it was that said it, but there, there was a scientist that said when um, the observer affects the experiment. Yeah, I think that, that probably comes from quantum physics uh, when right. you have this... Uh, um, uh, you know, wave versus particle thing that, uh, which is, yeah, which basically is- We'll is, wave at each other until in, we get solid, yeah, right? Yeah, even in physics. But but in social sciences also, you know, the school of thought that I was brought up in, into, like academically, is that we have role development indicators and national statistics and all this kind of stuff. And uh, we had actually very good teachers, like one of my one of my teachers, who was a teacher of my academic advisor, uh, they came up with purchase and power parity in the Soviet Union before, before the West, but they didn't get published because according to that, um, uh, that idea, um, uh, the quality of life in oppressed developing, uh, like the, the developing countries uh, post-colonial, post-colonial countries, the quality of life was a little bit better than, than people thought it would be. And the party basically said, look, like, you're, you're undermining, uh, undermining our fight against capitalism and, 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 and colonialism, so this is no-go, right? And then the entire world started using person power parity as opposed to uh, exchange rates uh, to determine uh, per capita GDP and things like that. So, you know, and he, like that particular professor was very not just knowledgeable, but wise in terms of what the numbers actually are and how they may be irrelevant or distorting the picture. So mm -hmm. I have this very good relationship with numbers, I would say that is um, more systemic and less reductionistic in some sense, uh, but it was not enough for me to actually explore questions of our active participation in the act of creation of social realities. Right. So that was a discovery for me personally when I was working on this paper, and I was fascinated by it. And so my what, what were the internal? That my academic advisor tabled it, so I had actually to wait a few years before I got back to that. Right, right. It, which you know, sometimes that, that it's that creative flow that just gets put on pause for a little bit while something else yeah. needs to be done that we're not necessarily aware of or that is required for the moment before we can move on. Right, it's systematized and, and there's processes and protocols and rhythms and patterns and everything. We just don't necessarily recognize them in process as, as we're experiencing them. That's right, so, yeah. Um, and I don't think, you know, the, a lot of people think that's woo, -woo but you know, there, it, there's science in that. There's science and math and, and, and numbers and what you're talking about when you are able to recognize these patterns, then you can affect them in some way 
um, through participation in the co-creation, right? So what were the internal things that were going on in, in, inside of you as to what to do with this information and, and how you saw yourself being able to, to move in the world with that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that is, um, you know, that is uh, just, I think, for, to understand a little bit more about internal things. Uh, I think I should mention two other, two other threads. Um, and one of it was my... Well, the work I was doing in intercultural communication, um, using the understanding that I had, the understanding of Chinese culture, and I had the, you know, you notice Xinjiang Polytechnic, I was, um, uh, you know, I was uh, sent to that, uh, you know, we also, we always have, or almost always here in the country that we're studying, um, between bachelor's and master's degree uh, in that university. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in that particular minor, uh, major. Uh, so, and, uh, uh, you know, my friends were going to Beijing University and Tsinghua University, and it was a well-known, um, well-known universities in China. And I was sent to Xinjiang Polytechnic, which was no name university, like college actually, uh, with like 10 years in existence. I was like, what the hell? I'm graduating with honors. Why the hell are you sending me there? <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> right, right, right. And then uh, I remember, uh, I remember a pro professor who was uh, teaching uh, political structure and uh, social social system of China. So he was like, asked me for a walk. It's like, you know, something is going on there um, culturally. And you seem like somebody who listened to what I was talking about, <laughs> even mm -hmm. when I talked. Sure. So we really want you to look into that. So I ended up negotiating on behalf of Moscow University with the administration of the receiving institution and solving some cultural issues in the process. Um, and then they signed a, an agreement that I uh, suggested, the, and the judicial agreement and stuff like that. And then um, that was a very interesting experience. I was actually offered a job at that university to be responsible for relationships with all Russian universities. <laughs> but I had to go to my, get my master's degree because I already paid for it. Well, um, and, so, and that showed that you did very well at creating those relationships. Yeah, but you see, but 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 then the downside of it was, you know, I was is fascinated by that. It was like really wonderful experience being able to do the code switching and uh, understanding. But when I started working for clients and consulting, um, with uh, with an organization, I I I found it. Um, at some point, I realized that what we ended up doing, we were helping Russian clients take advantage of cultural differences. Uh, because we were talking about relationships and that that's great, but the purpose of an organization, uh, if it's a corporation, is to make profit. So we basically, um, the success criteria for what we were doing was like reliable, um, you know, reliable delivery, uh, lower prices, you know, really I'm making sure that, you know, things work well for the Russian side. Um, right, and all the economic and, components of furthering yep. business. So, right. and then in, while I was doing that work, I was really connecting to the common humanity of my Chinese friends. Uh, and I, I became really fascinated by what is beneath the, beyond the culture, what unites us. And to one of your questions in the program, right? Yeah. Um, uh, right, the, you know, the culture is important. And, um, you know, one particular example, and I think that also relates indirectly, at least to your question about inner, inner dimension. Um, is that um, early on during that study abroad period, um, I remember we were staying and waiting for a bus in a hot day with another Russian friend and uh, uh, some Chinese friends were nearby. And uh, my Russian friend and I started talking about what, what would have happened if Newton didn't have this apple being dropped on his head. Okay. And this is a myth, but, but still it would be nice to like, uh, fantasize about how different the world would be and whether somebody else gravity or like discovered gravity and things like that. And uh, we were talking about that casually as many Russians do is like something we do casually. It's part of our culture. It's totally fine. And then one of our Chinese friends asked us what we're talking about in Russian and we translated it to him. He was like, oh my God, like, is it normal for you guys in Russia to talk about this stuff? He was like, yeah, totally. It's, <laughs> it's like what we do. And he's like, if somebody here started talking about that, people would think the guy would, the guy's crazy, right? And it's like, yeah, we know it's like, you know, a little bit different cultural attitude. But then he became quiet for a moment and he paused. He said, you know, 
But sometimes I have these ideas that I don't, don't, I cannot share with anybody because people will think I'm crazy. And then he started flooding us with beautiful, wonderful, most wild and practical ideas. <laughs> <laughs> So, and it's like, yeah, there is the door opened. Yeah, because there, is, there might be some cultural restrictions to reflection, like that not some cultures have more space for reflection than others, but it doesn't mean that we, um, we have different propensity for reflection in human beings. No, not at all. And, and I'll, I'll offer this in reflection to that. My wife's from St. Petersburg. And so we've had this period of adjusting to cultural memes that are embedded that we really didn't realize were there until we have these moments in conversation where we're reflecting and we're talking about, you know, really deep stuff. And, and a lot of times it's somewhere in the realm of quantum physics, right? Um, which for most Americans, that, that would seem just like really bizarre. It's like, why are you going there? Well, it, it's enjoyable because it gets you to think about how you're, you're interacting, not just with yourself, but with others and with nature and the planet, right? So it's that kind of depth. And, and it's been seen as this metaphysical mumbo jumbo for a long time because it wasn't articulated correctly. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally with you. And uh, right. this also uh, made me think about um, how, like in the context of us being co-creators of our social reality, as I, as I discovered for myself during my master's studies, it's like, how can we create this reality? It's in a way that uses our mutual understanding for something, for creating something we all can share and be right. part of rather than understand each other in order to create relationships that meet like my criteria or my client's criteria. So well, how can we really design realities that will honor our differences, cultural differences, but also connect us on a very deep human level? That was the other path I would say that eventually led me to what I do now. Okay. And that's that inner side, right? Mm -hmm. Because as human beings, I think our core is we long for connection. We long for community and we long to find some kind of harmony in that. And, and that doesn't mean utopia, right? That, that almost, it's almost like an effective management of chaos or, or when you're, you're dealing with something work or someone working through those tender moments where you're not quite sure you're understanding each other and then moving towards a more collaborative open space uh, as opposed to being in a competitive place, which is where your, your business dealings had been before this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, and I guess the, 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 uh, the third part is, is that um, I was noticing in my social reality at the time the, this mechanism of people reinforcing things that they don't like in the system. Uh, mm -hmm. because they're forced by the system to do things that reinforce those things. And I felt it's totally crazy. And um, it reminded me of a book I read uh, when I was about 15 years old uh, by Miguel Angeles, um, uh, Miguel Angeles Torres, uh, El Senor Presidente. And that was based on the Guatemala in the 1920s, as far as I remember, under dictatorship. So okay. it's fiction, but it was you know based on the author's experience with that dictatorship. And uh, the the patterns that, that, that he described there, I started recognizing some of those patterns. And I recall this book and it was a fascinating book, but it didn't offer any ways to deal with that. It just described how bad things are and how they work. But I was, I was drawn looking for hope and looking Yeah, where's the way out, right? And, and way you out. Point yeah, fingers all you do. want. Yep. But, you know, it's something my dad taught me when I was younger. It, it, it finally made sense when I got older. You know, when you're pointing a finger at something, you got three pointing back at you. So don't do that unless you've got three solutions to offer. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be a really interesting perspective and, and helped me to keep my mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Because exactly what you're talking, you know, the it seems like there's this um, kind of a trifecta of attention, intention, and interaction that takes place. And if we're putting our attention on that, which we don't like, then we're reinforcing that as opposed mm -hmm. to creating something that kind of like uh, Bucky, right? You know, create something that replaces it. Mm -hmm. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, which, which is totally part of it. But um, in addition to that, there is also institutional leverage that the system uses to push people um, to reinforce it uh, because right. otherwise it threatens their basic needs or survival even. Sure. Right. So, yeah, it's and, and then the choices are often hard and then good people start doing things that are not necessarily, um, you know, just because they cannot do it otherwise. Right. And but yeah, do you find that in this situation that, you know, we're you're speaking of what I see as a holistic picture and a holistic systems thinking regime. Right. Mm-hmm. Instead of these pieces and you know I had a conversation with Jeff Michelov years ago and, and uh, he said we're kind of seeing it as these pyramidal structures without the males at the top that are in competition with each other so in that transition um, how do you see the effectiveness of this um, advancement towards holistic thinking in order to, to shed those boundaries and, and to remove the barriers to entry, so to speak, into a larger collective? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Zen. It's, uh, I, I wouldn't say I think there is a one answer to that. Um, uh, but, personally, for me, I think that um, I'm playing with uh, um, making things as practical as possible, mm-hmm. as down to earth as possible. Um, because I saw some, I would say, results or consequences, I would say, of coming to this through a very either theoretical or or very spiritual in in a conceptual sense, not in transcendental sense, but in a conceptual sense. Uh, or the connectivity. Perspective yeah, so it's like all, it's all vibration yeah. or things like that, right? That they, this kind of stuff that, um, to me, created narratives that mm, that were un, that that were reductionistic in a way, uh, because um, be, because of the limitations of uh, our mental models and our language and all that kind of stuff. Right. So and, let me ask you this: yeah. the when you're perceiving that, um, it, and like you say, you know, everything's vibration. So one of the things that occurs to me is that we can't really think our way through a system built on vibration. We have to sense our way through that. You know, mm-hmm. Sharma yeah. does a lot of stuff with the co-presencing right. and co-sensing work, and and I see that being reflected a lot in, in your work as well. The uh, the notion of, of how that works. So, uh, and so how do you find that resonance? How do you sense your way through with what feels like the right direction to go? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, of course. Um, yeah. Um, Are there particular I think things? Part of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to frame. I, I, I think I know exactly what I, uh, um, how I want, what I want to share, but I don't know exactly how, how I want to share it. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. So just what's going on is I think that part of it is in relationship because uh, as as soon as we are within ourselves and we're not in relationships, we're not exposing ourselves to different people and tuning in with different people. Uh, we tend to create the worlds or descriptions of our own and get stuck with them. Mm-hmm. And actually like, and then, you know, we end up thinking that, you know, we're supposed to do something when actually we just invented it in our heads and it comes out of a place that is not very- It's like fears. Place. Most of them are created yeah. and, and none of them are, are, you know, rarely manifest, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that it's a very healthy uh, practice to actually talk to people and be with people and in different settings and in professional setting and personal setting and, and in both and, uh, and, and in different people, right? So, and I enjoy doing that. I think it's, it's a fantastic okay. practice. And, and yes, of course, there is also this time with yourself. Um, uh, but this time with yourself, uh, to me, it's very important for the work. I, and I enjoy being with myself, right? I, I had a, um, a cottage in the woods um, in Russia where I spent months, sometimes like n- not months, but like one or two months uh, in the summer when I was studying at school and so just enjoying, you know, walking in the woods and, and things. That like sounds that. like an amazing space. I, I, exactly. I, yeah, but, I, but I, I like my I, quiet space and then I like to be with people. 
right exactly yeah but but also you see so and i need that to recharge right sure but, absolutely. but, but at the same time in my work i feel that it's essential for me to be in relationship and i would be very worried for myself i would see as a red flag when i'm spending too much time on my own on my own or, or with myself when i'm addressing something that involves other people that that's what i would say make sense Yes, it, it, it does. So you're looking at the balance between your contemplation of being with people and actually being with them. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And also this, uh, um, um, you know, this, uh, I, I, I shared with you when we were preparing for this talk, right? So I have my own um, story about uh, transcendental versus constitutive domains. I think that could be helpful uh, to understand this kind of um, sure. practices as well. Um so um, the Institute for Evolution Leadership and the work that Manuel was uh, doing long before he met me um, is based on a very constitutive way of looking at things. Uh, so which means that this is a humanistic, materialistic way of looking at things, right? So we are like the consciousness is a property of our biology and things like that, right? So that's cool of that. Right. And, uh, and uh, um I personally do not consider myself a materialist. And I was brought up in the Russian Orthodox tradition and I do mm -hmm. not consider myself a materialist, but I find it very healthy to work, including work with people within the constitutive domain. Well, you have to understand your audience and work with them it's to where they're at before you can and take to them me, anywhere. This is not just understanding the audience. This is not just being accepted by others. This is about my personal psychological hygiene in a way. Okay. Right. And uh, to me, this is very important personally to be in the constitutive domain when I think about my systems change work. Uh, because um, right. very often what we you know, our relationship with the transcendental, um, from my personal perspective, I'm not saying that this is, this is how things are. I'm saying that this is my assessment of that, my personal assessment of that, is that um, there is a danger that's very, very high to, 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 to take your own interpretations as as a sign, as externalize your own inner uh, workings of your subconscious mind or your interpretations to externalize that and feel that somebody else is telling you what to do or you know, you're meant to do certain things, right? Yeah. And uh, the story that I have about that is that, um, you know, when I was about 15 years old again, uh, you know, I saw a dream. And in that dream, I, um, you know, and that was in that cottage in the woods and I was completely on my own and I was, I didn't, uh, you know, I was enjoying, you know, the sun, um, uh, the sun rays actually um, in the longer, on the longest day of the year. It's like, it was like completely beautiful. I took a few pictures and was like really enjoying that. During and, white nights. Uh, yep. And then I went to bed and I went to bed like, like I was, um, you know, um, I just not even bad. I was uh, laid down and uh, in dressed uh, as, as my forced um, mm -hmm. attire and stuff like that. And I woke up in that dream in exactly this with exactly the same stuff, right? So I realized that I was dreaming, and I was totally in control of what I was doing in that dream. Uh, and then in that dream, I was doing a lot of exciting and very important work that I don't remember, but I, I was doing a lot of great stuff. And um, there was this one place I was coming to in between those exciting things that I was doing. And it's a lake and there is a little bit of a hill. And on that hill, there is a, a, a very interesting red building. It's a red building uh, that looks a little bit like a medieval castle, but with large windows. And I was like, my thought process was, oh my God, like medieval castles should have small windows for protection. Like, why, why, why does it have this? Right, right, right. The monkey mind takes over. Right. Yeah. So, and, and I remember that building, right. And that was, you know, this, and then people were walking on that hill. So it was not like a lonely place, but that was a very calm place of reflection and contemplation. And um, in 2012, when I came to Oakland and like 6am in the morning, uh, I'm coming to Oakland to, to look at the apartment we're going to rent. 
and I'm walking from the, the, the station to um, uh, to just randomly, I have a few hours on my own to just, uh, I love like exploring the city. And yeah. I, I don't have a map on me because I want to just explore it widely, wildly. And I go to like Merritt and I see the lake and I see the hill and see build the building that's exactly from that train. And that's exactly the place where my family and I like, like we live just uh, a few blocks from that lake. And that's where we actually have our walks together uh, when we have this free time in between the very intensive work I'm doing. Well, there are two interpretations of that story. And there is one interpretation of that story. Well, Fyodor, you, you saw a prophetic dream when you were 15 uh, years old, right? So you, you're meant to be in Oakland. You're meant to be doing the work you're doing. It's, there is something special about it. Right? So it's just mm -hmm. one, one interpretation. So uh, interpretation number two, according to Harvard research, our brain stores memories in specific um, um, points, right? And we reconstruct the details that are completely irrelevant to what we actually experienced in the past based on different mental models we have, based on how we feel in the moment, based on our anticipations, et cetera, et cetera. So, and it could, it's just like one of the examples in, uh, in that, you know, there's this book stumbling on happiness about that, that, that thing. Uh, one of the examples is that, for example, you go to a restaurant and you, um, you, um, you know, you don't like the restaurant. Um, a couple of months after that, somebody asks you, why didn't you like that restaurant? And you say like the, the food was not tasty, the waiters were rude. And you can kind of even um, remember the details of how they were rude and how, how untasty right. the food was. And in fact, if somebody asked you in the moment, you would have said, I just have a headache. So, and this, 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 is, this is how our members could be distorted. So the second interpretation of the story, yes, that I had a dream because it was not something that I remembered in 2012. I actually was re recalling this dream throughout. So it was an important dream. I was recalling it throughout. There was a dream, I'm pretty sure about it. Mm -hmm. And there probably was a red building in a lake, but the, uh, but, but like statistically how, um, um, uh, you know, how often can we see a red building in a lake? Pretty often. And in this case, it was a pivotal time in my life when I was relocating to the city of Oakland and I was about to embark on a certain very exciting journey and very uncertain and difficult journey as well, but also very exciting. And I saw a red, a red building and a lake and the details were reconstructed to make the exact match. You see what I mean, right? And I prefer the second interpretation of the story without denying the, un the potential ontological validity of the first interpretation. Because I think it's much healthier to live your life and to do the work and to actually you know, make stuff happen and, and interact with people and be in community together when you have the second interpretation, not the first one. Does that make sense? It does. And, and yet, you know, for the, the experience side of it, it happened. It gave you uh, the core experience of joy, resonance, mm -hmm. uh, feeling like you were in the right place at the right time. And, and so this sense of energy that is consistent or was consistent with the sense that you had in your dream, right? Here's, here's a similar field, if you will, of electromagnetic frequencies that that match that that brought all of it up and the bottom line is you know you're there you experienced it it meant something to you you and we tend to want to uh, dissect everything in order to understand it rather than just accepting it for what it is and not needing that of course we always want to know right we want to know uh, how things work well maybe there's you know yet something else that we don't understand that might have something to do with quantum physics or quantum entanglement where there was this certain uh, path that you were on that because of how you were thinking and feeling, it created, again, you're talking about co-creation. We do this with reality too, right? So you co-created this path, um, not knowing who all you were working with at the time in order to do so, but you found it and it appeared and you paid attention and the, the intention was to have the interactions to continue life forward in the best way possible. 
So these kinds of elements, I think we often, um, we don't need to analyze them like we do, but we certainly don't give them the credence that they deserve. And we all have these kinds of things, in my opinion, but, you know, like you said earlier, that, that we're kind of reluctant to talk about them because it makes this seem, you know, a little wacky. Um, and yet these are the very things that build these interrelationships with each other because it's a kind of a, uh, maybe not a completely shared experience, but definitely a shared understanding of the kind of experience it is. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I totally agree with you that from the experience side, these things are very important. So I'm not trying to devalidate right. the role of that experience. I'm just trying to say that uh, considering it an experience that, I mean, and for, if, you, if you take the second interpretation of the story, this does not make the episode less meaningful. Not it at all. It makes it more personal and right. less transcendental, right? Or like not transcendental at all. Right. It's like, well, for me, it feels like I'm, I'm doing the right thing. And to your question about where is my inner compass and how do I sense things within myself, this is one of the stories that illustrates how I do that, right? So sure. it is, it, it, it does come through synchronicity, big time, right? And um, it does come through um, feeling in the right place with the right people, I would say, right? And if there is a tension, yeah. uh, sitting with attention and being present with attention uh, until the answer comes. Right. Right. And that's so a that, tough one to do. That that's really a tough one to do because most of us want to answer the questions we have with the knowledge that we think will, which is whatever we have. But we wouldn't have the question, you know, if we did, if we knew, uh, yeah. or or we might. But it does lead us to a, a deeper inter interrogation and and uh, inquiry as to the mechanisms, the practicalities, the the math and science that are involved because it, when you have these kinds of things, um, reality of the universe, it, it unfolds the math and science to us when we ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and to, to, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, we, we tend to wanna to compete with the universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, and, uh, and we don't know about collaboration. Yeah, you know, it reminds me uh, an example, um, again, Staying within the constitutive domain, I would, I'm just trying to say that actually, when we uh, do practical things, there there is no contradiction really mm -mm. Um, in 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 uh, the two descriptions. It's they designed to be talking about the same thing from like yeah. So and it's me um, um, this uh, idea of a connection with example by Brian Arthur from Santa Fe University, oh from Santa Fe Institute, um, um, in his that he gave as his in his book uh, the nature of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, when they, as far as I remember, uh, they ran this computer experiment with uh, um, very, uh, very simple operators being combined randomly by the machine. And uh, they also uh, knew where this wants to go. And they uh, taught the system to remember when this random combinations yielded something that uh, gets them one step closer or several steps closer to, to, to where they want to get. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then uh, whenever there is this random combination that actually uh, is uh, uh, gets them one step closer to where they want to get, uh, they taught the system to remember it and add it back to random combinations. And consistently within a couple of days, the machine created a code for eight digit calculator, which at, like the probability of this program being uh, like emerging from just random combinations without memory and the vision is one divided, uh, is, it's, it's less than one divided by the number of the particles in the universe. So it's practically zero. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you have, you know, you have a purpose, I would say, right? And you, you have the memory, you have the sensitivity uh, of what random combinations can bring you closer to the purpose. And you, you, you kind of remember them, you have the memory uh, to remember them and add back to these combinations, it's math. Right or like it's statistic. It's basically like very. Uh, it's not a. It's, it, there's nothing nothing transcendental about it. Um, if you look at it this way, it's just a computer and how a computers and random things work. Um, and uh, this reminds me of, uh, you know, how I actually learned about the work that Manuel was doing, 
is that uh, I made a big mistake at some point. Was, uh, there was a first program that my organization in Russia was doing with Moscow University. It's a big deal for me. We invited two international experts on China, and one of them was um, an American expert. And um, I was uh, taking personal care of like negotiating with him and uh, making sure that our folks booked the hotel and uh, you know the flight and everything for that particular date, like half year in advance. And when the date came, I realized that I was stupid because it was Russian Orthodox Easter. It was Russian Orthodox Easter in the 2000s, was not the Soviet Union, right? So nobody would come to a Sunday lecture by anybody if it's on a Russian Orthodox Easter. And he was going to do um, some, uh, some classes on Saturday and Sunday. So I ended up paying him a lot of money out of my pocket to show him Moscow on that day. So we adjusted the program, obviously, and we did that. Uh, but that was a space where we actually just enjoyed each other's company and conversations about life instead of him teaching, you know, to our sure. students. And, you know, I showed him the Red Square and all that stuff. And um, he mentioned an executive coach that was a, a pivotal at some stage in his life. And uh, at that point, for me, it was just part of his story. Very, very interesting. You know, had nothing to do with me particularly. And then at some point, actually relatively soon, I was sending him an email asking for a connection with that coach. And after a few sessions, she said, read that book about Adam Kahane, like by Adam Kahane, Solving Tough Problems. And I read that book and I read the next book and I read about the project that Manuel was working on in Colombia with um, Santos, who later became president of Colombia. Mm -hmm. um, and that was uh, the first time I discovered for myself scenario planning, multi-stakeholder dialogue. And to me, that was connected to this idea of bringing people together with different cultures, different worldviews, different like, and creating something that actually they shared, like they owned. And also it's about co-creating social realities because one of the examples is, uh, is, is, is really um, um, uh, bringing people together in South Africa after the apartheid, right? Um, so it's like, yeah, this is a macro stuff and this is also very personal stuff. And this is fascinating. I had no idea people were doing this. And I, uh, that's how I connected with um, uh, the chairman of Freer's Partners at the time, Jeff Barnum. Uh, and then I went to East Coast, studied with Peter Senge. That was um, around that time when you see all the Stanford, Chicago booth and stuff and stuff. Um, so, and I had about a year to actually explore what is going on, who is doing what. And Manuel and I were connected by three people independently. Like they were like, Manuel, <laughs> you need to connect. You need to connect. Yeah, it was like, much for like six degrees, huh? more like two or three. And eventually he saw me, none of these people actually made it. So we did connect because he saw me speak at Impact Hub Oakland. And I mentioned Adam Kahane. He said, I worked with Adam, let's have lunch. And we had four and a half hour conversation and that on that day decided to work together right away. So you see that is, to me, this, this goes back to things that were tabled back then. And it's not right. that something meant to happen. It's just something was resonating with it so much that even things like mistakes or random stuff um, allowed for possibilities to be noticed and remembered and embodied and built upon that eventually led to the founding of the Institute, which was your very first question today. Right, right. And you know, you, you've given a perfect example of how paying attention with that inner intention of fulfilling, you know, I, I often, I, I've come to call it a perfected form, fit and function in the world, right? Where you're in your optimal flow with the skill sets that you have, the direction you want to go. Um, and, you know, it, it, it may not necessarily be a destiny and it may be that, you know, this whole free will thing you choose, right? And, and so you've made the choices to be available, to be attentive um, and to interact in order to further this cause, which is greater than you. And I think that's one of the, the key aspects of it is most all of us that are working in this field of attempting to create a better world, we realize that, you know, that we're all in it together. We're all connected. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. just 
figuring out, uh, and, and for me, I'm, I'm gonna dive off the, the cliff for just a moment and, and reflect on an event for me, I was 18 instead of 15, but I had the question of what is truth? And, and I was in pre-med program at Ball State University, Muncie, Indiana. And the truth for me was, you know, how does this work and how do I fit in, right? And so be careful what you ask. I, I actually had the intention and I was willing to die for it if necessary. I was that intent. And so, you know, a week later, I come back from class. I lay across my bed and do the obligatory, you know, afternoon meditation. And, uh, and this was 1975. I heard this voice that I've been familiar with since I was a child. And it said, uh, my given name is Bruce. I said, Bruce, are you willing to die for what you believe in? And I, you know, I clamped up for a minute thinking, oh my God, what, what do I believe in? And, you know, Christ consciousness was the first thing, felt a little empty, didn't question it, just let it go. Cosmic consciousness came up as the next thought. And I thought, you know, that feels full because that's like everything, right? And so I said, yes. And at that point, there was music that was playing that had a, a guitar riff that sounded like a rocket ship taking off that helped to facilitate an out-of-body experience, or at least the beginning one. And I popped out, turned to look at my body laying across my bed, turned to look where, I, and then turned back to look where I was going and was immediately engulfed by white light. Now, th this is just an incredible right, experience. And, and I all of a sudden realized I could think, so I knew I wasn't dead. So that took that off the table, no more fear, right? And because the, there was nothing else there but the white light, I got bored really quickly and I asked if there was more. And I went into, I felt this movement, went into a sphere of pinpoints of light. I knew there were points of consciousness, whether in body or not, I wasn't sure because I knew I wasn't. And then this voice picked back up again and basically says, you know, these are the, those that you're to work with in order to facilitate a new world order. It will happen in your lifetime. Know this to be true. Your path will be full in trials of trials and tribulations. Understatement. Um, have faith and trust that everything that you need will be there at its appointed time. Trust and allow. And then this energy comes through again, and I'm back on my body taking a gulp of air. Now, for an 18-year-old, that was a pretty intense uh, experience, but it left me with understanding that, yeah, we're, we're all in this, where consciousness is condensed into these forms, and, and there's a lot of stuff in between, but we're not disconnected from it. We just need to figure out how it all works, what we need to do, the right questions to ask, and, and how to create this co-creative space so that we can work together and, and create a better world. And, you know, I'd given up on it until 2019 when COVID hit. It was like, oh my God, here it is, right? I figured I'd have to be 150 before it would start. And I admit that, you know, even divulging that now in, in this space is kind of out there, but this was just a, a relating a real experience for me. And hopefully I've done it well, because um, that's part of what brought us together. Mm -hmm. right is that intention to to just be available and help facilitate I, I, there's no real leadership in this because it seems to be all self-initiated with what we have in this internal process of wanting to be present and participatory in developing better systems mm -hmm. and it's surprising how ubiquitous this is now with all the different organizations that are coming up with all the different people now and of course this is 40 years 45 years later from my experience so you know it, it basically took that long for the universe said okay here's you know we're setting everything up and, and people are getting in place and so now what i saw and this is from where i see it these points of light that i saw there are now coming and reflecting in people like you and Matt and Manuel and, and, you know, and the folks in, in the uh, discussions that we've been having together and, and, and those kinds of things. There's a real resonance in, the, in my core that has that sense. Now, talking about that, right, uh, you know, to just anybody in public and things like that, they'd probably think I was kind of nuts. But, you know, there's this history that we have and, and that you have that you can relate it to, okay, this is my process. I know my process. Others may not understand it. They don't need to, mm -hmm. right? It's my process, right? Mm -hmm. and, and yet here we're all sharing these similar processes. And, and this is kind of what I hope to draw out as a golden thread with One World and the New World is the similarities of which we approach things and 
the kind of the place that we end up in sensing um, the, a new normalcy mm-hmm. in this experience collectively. Totally, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I totally well, you. the practicality, you know, it is what are we doing? Who are we doing it with? What are the, the results we're accomplishing? What are the metrics we're using to prove it? You know, how can we reflect on that? How can we use those statistics then in order to say, okay, here's what we've done. Here's the proof. Uh, now what? What's next? And, and how can we integrate this process into a larger picture? And I think this is what you're doing with the uh, uh, Transformational Leadership Series. Um, yeah, but- and then here, just a quick comment on, on that one. Um, even, even if you uh, put the metaphysics for a while, it doesn't become any 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 easier or simpler uh, because oh. within the constitutive domain, um, yeah, I'm, there is complexity that is oh, very yeah. constitutive, but it's still fascinating. And uh, one of the things, for example, that I um, formulated for myself in terms of impact assessment of systems change work, um, it's similar to the um, uh, Heisenberg's principle, right? It's, um, the uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, uh, but it's right, either you, you can uh, measure where the particle is, or uh, you know the direction speed in which the, it is going. As far as I remember, uh, but the thing is that with the uh, systems change, um, you can either um, identify and separate the direct consequences of your actions or you can sense the evolution of the system. You can never connect the two. You can never connect the two. You can, because as soon as you focus your attention to what it is that you are doing that leads to measurable outcomes that you can present without having the attribution problem, you lose the grasp of the the unified whole of the system evolution. But as soon as you connect with that system evolution, yes, you're dancing with it. You're doing something. You're part of it. Absolutely. But it's not that you can say, oh, I am changing that system. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, the, the system, you know, infinite intelligence or, or the intelligent design or how, what, however you want to call it, it has its own inner workings. And, and we're just kind of actors on the stage that, that show up to participate as best we can, but you're yeah, right. But, but, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would make a distinction between interpreting us as, uh, as uh, agents of some external forces um, versus us as, 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 as participants, as corporate in codependent relationships. So that's what the second interdependent is what I mean, I right? Say. So instead of just having, um, because, you know, there's one worldview, which is transcendental that there is a, there is a purpose or a guiding force uh, um, and, uh, that, 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 that is determining things that need to happen. And we are only now transmitting the message or doing the work that has been designed before us or for us. And this is not where I'm coming from uh, in this particular area. What I am, mm, uh, how I interpret it is at least like in my work, uh, the basic premise behind my work regarding this is that we are like an ontological design theory, right? So we are active co-creators of the social reality, but none of us can single-handedly keep this reality in place or transform it, right? It is co-creation and also by designers, like if somebody is saying like, oh my God, like uh, what do you guys think of yourselves? as change agents or, or designers of systems, like, who are you? Who the hell are you, right? And it's like, yeah, you are a co-designer of a system and, and, and I'm a co-designer of our social realities and everybody, we're just, most of the time, we're not aware of that because as Manuel likes to say, we cannot give up this job. This is, we are designers by nature. We're in it, let's admit it. And let's just do something about it. Let's be careful what we design together, right? But at the same time, it's not a one person job. It's a collective job. And that's what I mean. Like you either can watch your own action and try to make assessments of your actions, or you can make assessments and sense what, what the, where the collective is going. 
And there is a relationship. What you do matters for the collective and what the collective oh, does matters for you, but you can never determine a cause and effect relationship between the collective evolution and your actions. What I find is that taking that to the next level is that understanding your skill set, your intention, uh, you're looking for a place to fit in and, and, you know, it's like you're a thread in the tapestry. You're just looking to, to find where your entrance point is, right? And then the tapestry takes over from there because you're part of it. And your specific skill set, intelligence, understanding, uh, capability, talent, all of those kinds of things fit in that perfectly once you, see, once you begin to engage it because you're, you're all in, right? There, there's no leaving part of you behind to see how things work, right? <laughs> you, you've got to commit. And when you commit, everything else comes together around that and everything else, including other people, places, things, and you're working on, while well, simultaneously, like Robert Gilman was saying, you know, you work on, you're working on this harmony of self, others, or within self, others, and nature, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's mm -hmm. this new regenerative aspect that, that we're beginning to look at, which is a more holistic picture. And then how we can design these, uh, these new systems. And, and it may just be redesign of the existing systems, which is a little tweak here and there, because they are working, you know, even in the material world, everything's being delivered or pretty much, uh, you know, those systems are in place. They may not work to capacity or, or uh, as effective as they can, but that's this next layer, right? Mm -hmm. Where we're thinking about it differently and, and we're looking at things at, at the same things with different eyes. So I, I kind of call it the thoughtmosphere, right? Where there's, a, yeah. there's this thing of circular thinking, right? Where you're looking at the same um, middle section from different perspectives. Well, as Mansi was saying, even today, that, um, there's this spherical view where you've got multiple places that you can see it from, and it's not necessarily a, a you know, woo-woo thing. It's a dimensionally uh, specific type of thing through the electromagnetic spectrum because we're not separate from it either. It's all energy. It's all vibration. So we just don't consider those things because we've just been with this, um, I don't want to say two-dimensional, but three-dimensional model that we don't understand the greater aspects of what we can do as co-creators and that we're designed to be this way, right? And the, mm -hmm. what's been inhibiting us, you know, are things like this, you know, the fallacious narrative that, that we've been uh, thrust into over the last year or so and, and, um, and what it's caused and, and, um, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, it's been an accelerator, mm -hmm. right? It, it's caused people to action. And those who are basically are not being driven to action may not need to be, right? Where we think, oh, everybody needs to be moving in this direction. Mm, no, there's a division of labor, of labor and, and there's only, you know, so many places that need to be filled in order for the work to get done. And everybody doesn't have to be there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that goes back to the skill sets and the aptitude and attitude and all that kind of stuff. So how do you, um, how do you see your work being reflected in the world now and, and what kind of, of results are, are you seeing of the effectivity? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that ties uh, to the idea that uh, you can either see direct impact of, of, of your actions that is pretty much uh, uh, you know, not at systems level, uh, or you can actually make some assessments about where the system is. Mm -hmm. um, of course, like we did the work, like we do a program or uh, we do um, uh, some kind of uh, participatory engagements and we write, I write policy briefs, <laughs> stuff like that. And, and then, yeah, and then you can, uh, you can kind of sense like, okay, so people like the work or some things emerged from that engagement or the project started emerging, you know, of course, like um, this is, uh, you know, one type of, of things that we can, we can, we can, we can sense um, at a community level, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. But at the same time, 
you know, looking at the field at large, right? Um, I see a lot of changes and I like to think that the work that we are doing along with the work that thousands of people are doing in many different places, uh, that our work is uh, in alignment with produces these results collectively, right? Our, 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 our contribution is very, very small, which is exactly how it should be. It would be really bad, actually, I think, if our contribution was very large. Like, I don't know, like somebody would be a supreme commander of the global social evolution. That would be terrible, right? Uh, so, yeah, it's nice, actually, that, that our contributions are small. It's just, I love it this way, right? And, um, so, and then uh, in the field, over the last maybe even two or three years, um, I sense a lot of progress in a way. And even like uh, right now, I'm a participant in two programs, um, uh, one with International Futures Forum, uh, Graham Lester and uh, Maureen O'Hara, uh, Competence and Complexity. And, you know, they, I, I admire their work since, since many years ago, like 2012, actually. Uh, and, 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 and I'm happy to be there and um, talk with people all around, all, all around the world who are doing that. But in parallel with that, I'm... In a enrolled in a university in Russia to do a systems change program in Russian language done by some friends of mine who went to a master's uh, for, um, uh, for uh, master of leadership uh, for strategic sustainability program in Sweden. Hence the policy. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not a policy. It's a, it's a wonderful program that's, um, okay. uh, that is connected to the art of hosting community and you know all the good stuff. I have like okay. some mentors and good friends from that program in America and in other places. Uh, and I'm co-authoring a chapter with um, uh, several people, including a graduate from this program in, in, in Chile. Uh, so it's all really like an influential program in the world. So, but then actually some Russians took it and one of them happened to graduate from the same Institute of Asian and African Studies of Moscow University that, that I did. That's how we kind of initially got connected. And, um, you know, they are now doing a program, which is one third of a master's program. It's like one module of a future master's program, hopefully, uh, for Russians in Russian about systems change. Look, Zen, if uh, several years ago I would be speaking I, I, um, about systems change in Russian language, people would say, like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and right now they have 17 amazing participants from different sectors actually learning this stuff. And not just learning, but bringing the wealth of experience. And they have embodied experience, many of them at least, they have embodied experience of this and they're finding the language finally to talk about that. And I see leaders, grassroots leaders in Kenya, I see grassroots leaders in Greece, grassroots leaders in different states of the United States of America. And some of them have been talking about this for years and some of them have been doing this for years, but mm -hmm. are now finding language and connecting and learning from each other uh, partially because of the technology, partially because of the evolution of narratives. And also now then pair that with the fact that, for example, the G20 presidency agenda, the Italian presidency agenda includes systemic crisis as part of the official priorities of G20 leaders. And they have there um, the notion that we cannot go to the normal that we had before the crisis that we need to reinvent systems. Of course, yeah. there is a lot of stuff happening on the high level in politics that is degenerative and this is limiting. And of course, a lot of these things might be just talk, no action or some kind of misinterpretations. That's part of life. But I can tell you that I see the progress in actually at least embracing some of the language and connections and practices in places where they were not welcome even a few years ago. So I see that shift on, on, on a larger scale. And also I see some very nice friendships emerging from my local or like not local, but, but, but very down to earth, very, um, very limited in a good way work um, and results that are, mm, um, that are, mm, uh, that I hope are contributing to that larger picture as well. Let me let me just just pause there. <laughs> no, I would say from my place that yeah, they are um, because you're seeing it right, and, and you are doing things. You're you're engaged, and I see things similar. And I also believe that um, you know there's this notion that time is a measurement of the change of entropy, and as we decrease entropy, 
that means that change will take less time because it's in better uh, flow or resonance or even harmony with what needs to be because there's this um, the idea of you know the earth being conscious and we're learning to work with that consciousness we're learning that you know our, our consciousness is a lot more than what we thought it was to begin with you know there's lots of things that, that have come out and from both science and esoteric sides that are proving the same thing matter of fact there was um, uh, a woman that was uh, a doctor that was doing a dissertation at russian who was going over the recent scientific findings about how this spiritual concept of connectedness actually can be proven scientifically. And it was amazing. It just came out a few months ago and then my wife uh, brought it to my attention as English subtitles. So it made it even better for me. Um, but these kinds of things are relevant. They're, they're progressing and they're present and when one begins to look around and, and of course that's the key feature you have to you know raise your head up and from your the grindstone so to speak and and look around and see who else is there and just notice that and it's like walking into a room full of people and noticing who you have eye contact with instantly mm -hmm. right and connecting those dots and, and following that flow um one last question that i want to ask on on a daily basis is there something that you do that thinks or that you believe uh, or that you know helps you to stay in touch and be available um, for your own progression that you might be able to share with others for them to maybe play around with and see if it works for them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I must admit here that um, I have a lot of work to do specifically on my <laughs> scheduling <laughs> skills <laughs> and, 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 and making strategic arrangements for enough sleep. Um, uh, so which is something that this is the edge of my personal development practice, I would say, because um, it does impact uh, the presence, the ability to be present and uh, the ability to connect with uh, your inner compass when you are just working mm -hmm. like crazy and, uh, and don't have space to, right? So this is not something that I successfully practice uh, at the level that I love, but this is something I'm, I'm striving to do and I'm encouraging others to try that too, uh, if they need that to try, you know, unless they already master that. Uh, so this is one thing. Um, another thing is obviously um, disrupt the uh, disrupt the uh, um, the the normal flow of things. If if there is something that is I don't know, like you're um, you feel like you're you're caught in certain patterns that are not helping, just do something different. I don't know. It could be very easy lifestyle uh, stuff. Like, I don't know, like skip, like cancel that call, go for a walk or like, I don't know, play a board game with the daughter or things like that. Oh, that's, by the way, that's my battery. Uh oh, um, yep. So, um, so uh, yeah, this is a great illustration. I think of like, yeah, battery needs to be recharged because if battery is not recharged, then you end up with your avatar and your oh. avatar is not necessarily how you feel or how you're present. So yeah, sure. so disrupt the flow. And then finally, um, yeah, you know, I'm blessed to have a, a very good family and um, we support each other and that helps a lot. Um, so just having relationships either with your family or your friends or with someone else would, would be another thing I would mention. Great. Well, Fyodor, um, wonderful conversation. Obviously, technology said, okay, you guys are done. And we have come to a close anyway, in perfect timing or, or near perfect anyway. We, uh, I appreciate your time and thank you so much for it. Wonderful. Uh, it's my pleasure, Jen. Thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to, uh, to uh, more interviews that you, you'll, you'll do with some amazing people here. I, I hope, uh, I long for that actually, and, and I'll have so much fun. Uh, and I'll have information about uh, your contact information, the Institute and things that will roll in the credits afterwards. So thanks again. And uh, thank you for watching One World in a New World. We'll see you next time. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you, Zen. Good. Awesome. So I guess we can uh, close the official part if, uh, if uh, we can have a couple of minutes just for